This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I am joined by Richard Sakwa. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. My pleasure. You are, we were just talking, you are in Kent, UK. Yes. How is the war treating you? And when I say war, I mean the metaphorical war for now. Mm. Well, I'm not entirely sure it's entirely metaphorical because it's... Uh, it, it it's bad because uh, what's happened is that I've been warning for a long time that we were heading for a cold war. In fact, we're in a cold war, and a cold war means it. That, I mean, it's both metaphorical and literal, because it means that you demonize the enemy. It means that uh, open dialogue and conversation tends to become polarized very quickly, uh, and uh, it also can get quite personal, uh, personal insult, and so on. And this has been going on effectively since the end of the first Cold War. And uh, then we had what I've always argued since 1989, between well, between 1989 and 2014, we had this uh, cold peace when none of the fundamental questions of European security were resolved. Then we were back into a Cold War too with the Ukraine crisis of 2014. And unfortunately, the second Cold War is in huge danger now of turning into something which first cold war didn't which was a hot war and we're closer today to a hot war than we were before and this is accompanied by demonization by personal abuse for example i'll give you uh, an, an example of this i've not been particularly close but i have been involved with a thing called the westminster russia foundation now this was a body dedicated to uh, dialogue for uh, cultural contact between russia and uh, the uk and uh, over the last week, they've had a thousand uh, you know, media attacks or was it social media attacks and uh, hacks and all of that, uh, including um, personal uh, abuse and threats to the chair of that organization. And uh, a couple of days ago, he resigned as chair and closed the organization. That's just an example sure. that this is really a cold war in some ways worse than the first one because there's no rules of the game richard we'll come back to that in a moment but would you mind if at all possible please giving me a little bit of a history lesson in how we arrived at where we are now yeah well um this is uh, I'll, I'll tell you I'm, i'll give my idea of why you know, and I was going to, I, well, I've hesitated just now. I was going to use a fancy mm. word and uh, I didn't want to abuse the patience uh, of your listeners. On the other hand, I know they'll know it. And the word was going to be ontological, meaning the meaning of meaning. And uh, I argue, and I think that uh, after the end of the first Cold War in 1989, we had this gap between how we see the world. And that's why we're into this Cold War conflict now. And in fact, Ukraine is all about it, this war mm. we're in now. And I mean, in a nutshell, it was as follows. At the end of the Cold War, 1989, there were two peace orders on offer, both good, uh, but 
uh, with a modicum of goodwill, they could have been made compatible, but that goodwill was missing. The first model was what I call the Charter International System. This is based on the United Nations. This is based on sovereign internationalism. It's based including, I suppose it incorporates gate power politics, buffer zones, spheres of influence, balance of power, all the classical realist stuff. Mm. The other model was... Uh, liberal internationalism, which after the Cold War became liberal hegemony. Now, this is also a good thing. You know, there's plenty of good things there. You know, free open trade, mm -hmm. freedom, uh, you know, absence of censorship, you know, elements of democracy. Let's not go overboard, but nevertheless, quite good in general, um, you know, fair, fair elections. Uh, but, you know, where you, can, you have a public sphere and so on. But at the heart of that was U.S. power. And, you know, again, often used for good, often used mm -hmm. for evil. But nevertheless, it's like all states, a mix. But dominated by this vision of American exceptionalism, leadership, unipolarity, and so on. Now, these two models were not entirely incompatible because both were based on the post-war United Nations system and all of the international law, which uh, happened after 1945. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Russia, Russia, the Soviet Union, and then Russia, Gorbachev, Mikhail Sergeyevich, and Perestroika in the late 80s, Boris Yeltsin in the 90s, then Putin from the year 2000, absolutely insisted on that first model, the sovereign internationalism, great power states, of course, joined by China, very much so uh, lately, India to some degree, the non-aligned movement, of course, uh, is element of that. Liberal hegemony on the other side was a, a rather universal, exclusive system, you know, a rules-based order where sometimes you would feel the rules were being made up as you go along. Mm. Uh, so uh, that, uh, again, the, but these, and of course, at the heart of that was the vision of an expansive vision of NATO enlarging, European Union enlarging, the Atlantic power system enlarging. Also, of course, in the South China Sea, ensuring uh, the dominance of US power. So it's a mixture of really good normative values, which, you know, I think most normal, decent people would support. Uh, but at the same time, combined with US power. And it's this combination which Russia could not accept. It could accept some of the rules. It could not accept becoming a subaltern because it refused to accept that it was a defeated power at the end of the Cold War. It was unlike Germany or Japan after 1945. And that resistance, ultimately, and this is quite important for me, that resistance of Russia to liberal hegemony turned into something deeply in many ways, unpleasant, normatively good. Soviet internationalism, you know, we're Soviet and we're engaged in international public goods. But over the years, in the Putin years, it became, uh, well, you know, it was, it was not able to offer a basket of public goods which were attractive to the rest of the world. Some of it was, non-alignment. Um, why? Sorry, why? Yeah. But the, the actual substance and the procedures, for example, you know, Putin, I mean, it offered something which was a conservative traditionalism, you know, of the family values, you know, all good stuff again, but couched in a language of intolerance, sometimes couched in a, in a, in a rather exclusive and um, maybe backward looking such like not perhaps healthy conservatism, as, called, as Putin put it in the Valdai speech, but uh, a rather more closed, closed system. And so you got this endless uh, denigration of, uh, I, mean, I mean, don't, I mean, I was going to say, you know, LBGTQ communities mm -hmm. and so on, even though we shouldn't exaggerate that. 
you know, homosexuality is legal in Russia. There's a very thriving, uh, thankfully, gay scene. Um, Although Putin know. doesn't like it. He doesn't like it, but he is tolerant. He has not, it's not gone back to, you know, full scale Saudi style, you know, yes. or you know, Middle Eastern style thing, even though Russia got enormously uh, punished for stuff, which, you know, homosexuality, as you know, is illegal in over 65 countries uh, and yet mostly ignored. 65 countries? I didn't know yeah. that. Well, Saudi Arabia, well, many most Middle Eastern countries are going into Asia. Wow. And I don't know about Africa. I really don't know. Well, it's legal, yeah. Yes. Um, in South Africa, but not, I don't know, Uganda, there's issues, yeah, of course. Not, I don't think so, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. Um, but, um, you know, clearly it's not as. Uh, you know, anyway, so in general, Russia. Uh, was a mix of offering, you know, this uh, alternative model, uh, but, uh, and, you know, we'll come back to that in a minute, no doubt, um, this this war at the moment clearly showed um, the the fact that, um, you know, Russia's, you could call it a revolt against Western modernity. And yes, this revolt sense. against Western modernity and US power at the heart of that modernity. So it was a mixture of the two. And I think that uh, Putin... And the whole thing became mixed up and confused. And this is why, you know, we then have this huge ontological gap between, you know, perceptions of the world. Now, uh, I think that a lot of the Russian positions made sense. Not all. Uh, for, sorry, for example, for example. Uh, on the, on the, uh, on the opposition to the invasion of Iraq, in okay. uh, 2003, the uh, you know the model for regime change, uh, and that the interference in the internal affairs of states, yeah, I mean, I, I you know we all believe in human rights and we all believe in the ethical values, but it has to be tempered by the respect for you know states are different stages of evolution, different stages of development, mm. and the idea that uh, the U.S. could push these, or even Afghanistan, they should have, you know, perhaps gone for Osama bin Laden in 2001 and then left. Mm. But 20 years of fighting, what was clearly a hopeless war. We had reports way back 10 years ago, the Zigur, you know, the uh, investigations uh, where it just clearly, you know, trying to be nation building a state which was made up in such a complex manner um, just led to, you know, terrible human rights abuses. So the critique of that, the thing which really set Putin off, by the way, really upset him, was the intervention in Libya, first of all by France and the uh, UK, uh, followed up by uh, mm. the US, uh, where Obama said leading from behind on that one. But, you know, it said it isn't just the US, it was Anglo-French. For me, Libya was also upsetting. I'll tell you why. Um, in 2008, uh, Libya and Italy, because Italy was a former colonial power, uh, they um, you know signed a trade deal and a very very extensive one, and so uh, and you know Libya had given up its nuclear weapons program a few years earlier, and uh, uh, the son of Muammar Gaddafi was a fellow called Saif Al Islam, and Saif. Uh, just funded a program of sending uh, over a dozen PhD students abroad. One happened to come to my University of Kent. Really great guy, a really good person. And uh, he would go back to Libya and speak to Saif al-Islam and be talk about how the plan was openly to for gradual reform, that his father was getting old, um, that and, you know, there was going to be a soft regime transition. 
and my my student was a really excellent guy and you know committed to all democratic and good values and all of that gradualism was destroyed in a blink by the western powers by the so-called you know rules-based order which was you know under the false pretense of averting massacre in benghazi there were bad things going on but it was uh, made up it was exaggerated and what was resolution 1973 of the united nations of a no-fly zone became then a full-scale bombing campaign I've heard, now I'm not going to swear it's a fact, but just recently read that 15,000 people were killed in bombing raids and so on in Sirte in uh, Libya. Now, that seems to be an extraordinary number. So I'm not saying that's a fact, but certainly there, it was way beyond the UN mandate, way beyond. And of course, they hunted down Muammar Gaddafi and brutally murdered him, as you know. And so, just to add to that, sorry, just to add to that, uh, I, I can tell you from what at least what i've read and you can correct me if i'm wrong but libya i think was the only african country that had no external debt under right. gaddafi it was also a huge development program for example uh, mm. the, you know free education free health and so on uh, massive uh, you know public works including a water pipe all the way from uh, the, the huge aquifer in the south to the north and so on mm. all of that was destroyed I mean, some of it is rebuilt now, but uh, it was damaged and destroyed. And, uh, and Libya has been thrown back, you know, the state destruction of a state. So you can see why Putin was upset. And so he was right on that. And I'm sorry, uh, he was. And what's so dangerous is that so many Russian positions were simply called disinformation, fake news, uh, and so on, which are not, you know, I... I refuse to be cowed and bullied. I mean, I'm afraid that that's my character. Maybe it's my Polish background. <laughs> I don't know. But for example, people were, were you know, excoriating. <laughs> did good on you. <laughs> going on, um, going on RT, Russia Today, the television program. You know, people would always, would look down their nose and say, you know, you're just spouting Kremlin propaganda. But you know, I've worked with people on that channel more or less from the beginning and many of them were absolutely excellent people mm -hmm. i mean these were just normal russians doing a good job who were not uh, and many independent programs were made over and over again they said absolutely no um editorial censorship they could do exactly as a, of course they were chosen perhaps because they were already inclined in that way anyway fair enough you know that's the way media works i think i don't know but uh, i think it probably is but, you know, some of the stuff on RT was ridiculous as well. I mean, mm. I don't go, well, don't deny it. But in other words, it added to a more pluralistic media environment. Of course, all now closed down. I'll add one thing, if I'm sorry to go on too long, but just say... Please do of, go on. All of these things, there was, again, there was this degradation of Russian public space in the latter, well, since 2011, 2012, when Putin came back for his then his third and his fourth terms. And one of those signs, and I'm very open about it, which I deplored, and that was the uh, changes from late 2013 and early 2014. In, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, RIA Novosti was an agency which I was very closely involved with as it emerged out from the Soviet Union, Russian information agency, Novosti. Um, and uh, it had been built up, developed early on, very brave during the coup of August 1991, you know, it, in its early version. Uh, and um, under its leadership for a few years uh, in the 2000s of Svetlana Miranyuk, and I give her name because I have enormous respect for her, 
working within the Russian state media system, but she was a, a professional of the highest order, and she, you know, modernized the university. A lot of really smart young people there, uh, men and women, really excellent. Mm. Uh, but there was, they were all purged, and Svetlana lost her job in late 2013. And the new generation of people who came were were far more, well, less professional. Let's put it this way. Uh, and less and some less open-minded. The whole agency, Russia Savonia, Russia Today, which is a holding company of the whole things, Dmitry Kiselyov, uh, you know, a, a masterful um, uh, broadcaster, but um, you know, clearly a propagandist or, or, in, in all sorts of ways. And so Kiselyov, Dmitry Kiselyov, is the person in charge who took over effectively um, from, from. So there's been this closing down of public space and so on for some time but it still you know there's still a chance I, I, you know the you know there's you know russia's a complex place there's always eddies and currents and uh, other things going on or certainly there was until this war richard if you don't mind would you quickly give me a, a summary of how the ukraine and the uh, neighboring countries were formed after the after the soviet collapse because that all helps us get to where we are now in terms of our understanding yeah well the soviet union uh, was established in december uh, 1922 uh, with three founding republic well four i suppose Belarus, but the transcaucasian um, ukraine and russia and uh, uh, by the end there were 15 union republics and it's funny you should ask that question because uh, i was just thinking today Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the last Soviet leader, was uh, committed to reform. We know about perestroika, glasnost, and democratizatia, all of these things. But also, he was absolutely committed to keeping the Soviet Union together. In fact, I was just looking at his book called Soyuz Mojnabula Akhrani. We could have saved the Union. Uh, and uh, he argued that a more modern, democratic, confederal state was possible. Instead of which, in December 1991, the leaders of Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, Shushkevich, Kravchuk, and Yeltsin, basically decided by a stroke of the pen to dissolve the Soviet Union. Now, I have enormous sympathy for the aspirations of these nation states which were in the Soviet Union. Above all, those who were very involuntarily put in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania and Moldova. Also for the aspirations of Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. But uh, one way or another, maybe you know, with a different configuration, a democratic union was possibly possible. And this would have avoided all that we are, instead of which we have Ukraine, which emerged in December 91 as an independent state. And um, of course, Russia as well, the Soviet Union was abolished. There was a Commonwealth of Independent States, which was established afterwards, which was to have been the successor. And it was to have maintained centralized military control, uh, including over Sevastopol. That was so at the uh, meeting of Shushkevich, Kravchuk, and uh, Yeltsin, Sevastopol did come up. And the Ukrainians said, doesn't matter, we're all going to be under unified military command. Of course, no sooner was Ukraine independent than they abandoned this unified command and Sevastopol ended up in Ukrainian hands, uh, which was always an issue, and Crimea was always an issue uh, right from the start. Um, so we have 15 independent states, Ukraine refused effectively to join any of the post-Soviet um, 
integrating bodies. And you can also, in part, understand this. This is like the Commonwealth of Independent States and later on the Customs Union and what became, mm. in the end, the Eurasian Economic Union. Now, I was going to ask you, why was Ukraine the black sheep? Yes. Um, it, Ukraine, Ukrainian national identity is complex. Uh, and Putin doesn't get it right at all. Uh, but it, it's complex. I mean, in pure physical territory, he's right in a sense. Uh, a lot of uh, territories were agglomerated to uh, the Soviet Ukraine. Um, in, in the first instance, the Donbass, um, those uh, which were part of the uh, well, it was all empire, so it didn't really mean much in the um, mm. before 1917. Um, and of course, in the West after the war, during the war, chunks of Poland um, and um, the eastern parts of what well, Czechoslovakia, Slovakia, and uh, Hungary. Uh, so, I mean, that's, but you know, all states in a sense are you know, not always, uh, you know, there's no natural in Eurasia, all borders are relatively arbitrary. But the key thing about Ukraine is that its model of state building, I was very generous at the beginning. Anybody living in Ukraine got Ukrainian citizenship, excellent. But it gradually, began to emerge as a whole state building was built on an anti-Russian bias. And also, you can understand some of this, because clearly, if you had been uh, uh, you know, part of a larger imperial unit, but the representation of Russia as the simple enemy. And so Ukraine yes. emerged as an anti-Russia project, and this then, again, this constant interaction and those two models of peace of peace orders after Cold War now interact because the U.S. liberal hegemony one quite explicitly said that we've got to keep Russia and Ukraine apart. So you've got two things going on within Ukraine, a rather nationalistic, anti-Russian, even Russophobic development, quite tolerant in all sorts of ways quite tolerant of Russian language and so on initially uh, well yes uh, initially and uh, but at the same time externally an example of that is a well-known Zbigniew Brzezinski the uh, national security advisor under Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s he wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard in the mid-1990s in which and other articles which he said Russia and Ukraine must not be allowed to get together. It'll become an empire, which is nonsense. Why on earth should it be? It would just be a natural unity of Slavic, East Slavic peoples. But US was absolutely intent on stopping this and blocking Russia any, in any way having influence. The example I gave is in the late 1990s, there was an attempt to modernize an existing Soviet pipeline on the far side of the Caspian. The United States sent 48 emissaries, 48 diplomats and emissaries to try to block it to Uzbekistan. and <laughs> It was insane. I mean, if you were sitting in Moscow, you'd say, guys, what's going on? What is going on? You know, they don't give us a chance to breathe. But the important thing about this Ukrainian one, to go back to Brzezinski, because he was a smart guy, he also understood he was very much in favor of NATO enlargement. But he mm. said... We NATO enlargement, and perhaps there's good things about NATO enlargement. We shouldn't just simply say NATO enlargement was a bad thing, but unmediated enlargement without such like. And so what Dzhinsky said was because NATO NATO perhaps is a good thing. It stops Greece and Turkey going to war. The small states 
back, right. beating each other up as they did in the interwar years and all sorts of stuff. So it's, you know, it's, it, and it's based on fundamentally good you know, Atlantic charter values ch and charter values. Um, but um, he also said NATO should enlarge, but we've got to build an overarching security framework with Russia. Otherwise, we'll end up with a security dilemma and conflict. That overarching dimension, which I've been arguing for for years, would have averted all this crisis where we are today. Uh, if Brzezinski even had been listened to it, instead of which the United States, why on earth should we listen to Russia? It's a marginal declining power. You know, it's irrelevant. And then when it was no longer irrelevant and no longer declining, then it became a demonized power. What on earth you put it when they got upset by what yeah. Brzezinski said they'd be upset about and Cannon and all the others, George Cannon, about NATO enlargement. So it was a wasn't just a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was a prophecy that was fulfilled. And by the way, just to add one thing. Yeah, when, sure. Just before uh, Brzezinski died, I think he died in 2016, he brought a book out in 2016 and some art, 2015 and some articles, uh, in which he said, look, we've got to deal with this Russia question. So he went back to that. I mean, deal in a good sense of, you know, <laughs> <I stand back. laughs> there's others who wanted to deal in a bad way, but uh, he certainly wanted to deal in a good way. And to say, look, we've got to solve this security dilemma. This was even after the first Ukraine crisis of 2014. Yes. But Richard, why did the anti-Russian anti sentiment uh, uh, expand in Ukraine? What about the other regions? Why, yes. why are they so quiet and timid? Yeah, that's uh, um, Ukraine is uh, um, my view is that there were two models of Ukrainian state building. One was this, you know, I used to call it monism, but again, I don't want mm. to uh, abuse the tender ears of your listeners. So a monist, a single uh, vision of such like you can just simply more simply call it nationalist vision. Yeah, a nationalist vision. And the alternative was a pluralist vision. Uh, I mean, national Ukrainian nationalism has got many positives to it. So I'm not just simply condemning it. It's got extreme wing, which is very unpleasant, neo-Nazi and fascistic even. But, you know, in a main... And that isn't a conspiracy theory, by the way. That's real. That they're all genuinely. The Azov Battalion, for example, uses mm. the wolf angle, and there's, there were other battalions, very cruel. And it's these people who are now fighting in Mariupol to the death. Uh, so, oh no. But I think it's always important to keep that in perspective. You, as Paul Robinson put it, Ukraine has a Nazi problem, but it is not a Nazi state. And the same applies to Russia, by the way. It has a, you know, how can I put it, a right-wing problem. But, it, you know, it, or it has a, klept uh, you know, a corruption problem, but it isn't just simply a kleptocratic mm, state. Mm, mm. Um, so as for Ukraine, the other model, uh, which I don't see why they couldn't have done it, including some of the nationalistic motifs, so it wasn't entirely either or, was uh, this what I would call a pluralistic vision. And that is to accept that post-colonial Ukraine, if you want to say the Soviet Union was a was an empire, or even you know pre nineteen seventeen, of course was an empire, uh, that you would um, then have accept the fact that you've got hybrid identities. That's what post-colonialism is all about: hybrid identities, right. where you have language. I mean, the idea well, now. I mean, inside, hello. Yeah, I was going to say South Africa. I was going to say to make just simply Zulu and so on, whatever they are, all and, and Afrikaans and Afrikaans and yeah, or what have you, just simply and exclude English, for example, mm. um, or vice versa. 
it would just be absent and plus the other native language indigenous languages um so um yeah uh, but ukraine didn't it just it, it went to it didn't accept this pluralism now this pluralistic model um was you know there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't have done it i mean canada has done it Wales, England, when a sense of Welsh language and so on, has done it. Many other countries, Italy with the autonomy for Odisha and so on. What we're talking about is to say that Ukraine would then become, I mean, the, the statistics are reasonably clear. At least 60% of the population used Russian as the primary language. Uh, this was about a decade ago, before the recent changes. Uh, and just under 20% of the population are so-called ethnic Russians. And that's a very large proportion. Um, you know, there's far fewer Swedes in Finland, because Finland used to be part of the Swedish Empire. Yet, Finland is completely bilingual. If you go to Finland, everything is bilingual. And yet, Ukraine refused to make Russian a civic language. It's monolingual. For me... Yet Yet the yet the majority did. They've sure. been Ukrainized over the last few years. Today, as a result Sorry. of the mm -hmm. uh, nationalistic government, which came a super nationalistic, hyper nationalistic government, which came to power after 2014, they've squeezed out Russia entirely from public life, media. They've closed down the TV channels and so on. Today, there is not a single university or school which educates in Russian. And Ukraine. this was endorsed by the West. My word. Someone said to me the other day that Ukrainian isn't a language. Yeah. Well, well that's false. I mean, in a sense, language, you know, you, you know the imperial view is that, um, you know, that a, a nation, you know, a language is, uh, 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 it becomes a language. You know, a, a national language is a dialect that was taken up by a nation and then becomes a right. language, if you like. Um, but of course, you know, the uh, the etymology of Ukrainian is complex, uh, in particular, because it's uh, when it the east, the western part, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, quite deliberately introduced uh, non-Slavic words into the um, this evol evolving language to distinguish it and to separate it. And in fact, the whole political program was just to that Russophobia, if you like, was born there. Also, of course, parts were under Polish uh, dominance. So Ukrainian absorbed all sorts of different words. But no, I, I think that's uh, that it's would a false be okay. it would be a misleading statement. Yes. Yeah. Crimea, of course, uh, it's 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 complicated. It was conquered by Catherine the Great in 1783, taken from the Ottomans. Um, of course, the people living there were the Crimean Tatars, uh, a residue of the Mongols uh, way back. And uh, the uh, well, it's more complicated than that. That's part of it. Um, and uh, then uh, it was in 1954. It was transferred from. It was within the Soviet Union. Transferred from uh, Russian Federation or Russian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic to Ukraine for developmental reasons. Ukraine was, abs uh, Crimea was absolutely devastated in the uh, Second World War. Major battles took place there. And of course, deportation of the Tatars by Stalin. Uh, and it made sort of sense in 1954 because they built the, uh, for water, the North Crimean Canal and for industrial reasons and so on. It, but it didn't matter in the Soviet Union. However, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, there was a referendum which already showed that Crimea did not and was not happy about 
coming under Ukrainian jurisdiction. Uh, it had a, so between 92 and 95, it had its own separate constitution and its sort of a autonomy, which was abolished in 1995. But Ukraine, 60% of the population of the two and a half odd million in Crimea are ethnic Russians. Uh, so it was quite clearly overwhelming uh, predominance, plus, of course, the um, presence of the Sevastopol naval base, which was, um, I mean, Russia is a huge country, yet it's got very little access to open waters, very limited access. And mm -hmm. even, of course, Crimea and Sevastopol, it isn't, it's to the Black Sea, which, of course, has got the narrow straits, the Dardanelles, and controlled by Turkey. Uh, but so Crimea... Uh, was always going to be an issue. And after the events of 2014, when Viktor Yanukovych, the legally elected president, was in one way or another chased out of power, um, you can call it a coup, call it a popular uprising. Of course, even there you have differences of what it was. An annexation, sorry. But it, the term that I keep seeing in the media is that it was annexed. Yes. Um, it, it, it was. So after the overthrow of the government in February, uh, Russia moved in and effectively staged a referendum on the 16th of March. And on the 18th of March, the formal um, annexation took place. Now, the Russians don't like to use annexation, and they would say it was simply the return of Crimea to Russian jurisdiction. Uh, I mean, so when you use the word, I mean, technically it was annexation. It was a territory taken from one country to another. And it certainly flouted all international law. For example, uh, Catalonia in Spain cannot just unilaterally yeah. decide to leave or Scotland from the United Kingdom. However, it was the referendum, however, uh, bad, poor conditions. It was absolutely clear that that was the will of the majority. And that's yes. why perhaps annexation suggests a forced imposition. It was seized when perhaps a more neutral word would reflect the genuine aspiration. Right. I was in Crimea not long after the uh, vote and such like, and I can't tell you just the enthusiasm I encountered. That, so yeah, it's what they wanted. It's what, what they wanted. wanted. Not all, but uh, what most people wanted. And so if there'd been, if the West had allowed, a, mm. and a German public opinion polls afterwards showed it as well, so it wasn't just Russian ones. If the West had allowed, you know, if ever they would give Russia a breathing space, and they didn't, in the post-Cold War years, they haven't. There was endless containment. If they'd organized, allowed to organize a internationally supervised referendum, they would, the people overwhelmingly would have voted to stay with Russia. And then some sort of deal, perhaps compensation with the Ukrainians, just like perhaps we should at this point accept the international recognition of Kosovo. Another illegal separation, which is un however, supported by the West, uh, and perhaps for good reason, again, I mean, perhaps, the, the, you know, because that, you know, again, but it's an analogous situation, each situation is different. As for the Donbass, mm. that's rather different, because uh, even though it became, you know, this huge bone of contention, a, a opinion polls before the events uh, held in 2013, before the, you know, the conflict of 2014, Opinion polls showed that the, and I've been through Donbass, they didn't want NATO, they wanted to maintain their Russian identity. However, they wanted to do this within that model of Ukrainian state development, the pluralistic model. Not the nationalistic one, but the pluralistic one. So it was not a separatist movement as such at the beginning. Yeah. It was and not that's the term. 
That's the term that you keep seeing, separatist. Yes. Uh, and the, uh, what they became, though, but the word separatist is not a good word. I'm not quite sure what it is. They, I mean, it's, it's after they sort of, after conflict in 2014, and, you know, you had the Kiev government, the new Kiev government, um, launched a you know anti-terrorist operation they called it at a uh, oh, basically full-scale war against its own people nearly four million there who wanted to at that earlier stage to uh, you know to live as they wanted to or to maintain culture identity and so on it's not even entirely ethnic issue it's a cultural issue mm. Russia and Putin did not support separation Putin opposed a referendum on the 11th of May 2014. He opposed That's it. That's interesting. Sure. He, and uh, he then, uh, but on the other hand, he wasn't going to allow them to be overrun by the Ukrainian army. So that's why Russian forces openly intervened twice. In August uh, 2014 around Ilovaisk and in February 2015 in battles around Debaltseva. Sorry, what was, what was Putin's motivation for that? For not supporting it. Yeah. Putin did not buy into those Russian nationalist vision of uh, what was called then the Russian Spring, the nationalism uh, and such like. Putin has always suppressed ethnicized Russian nationalism. The majority of those political prisoners in Russia until recently were Russian nationalists. Those who, and Putin understood uh, that Russian nationalism could destroy Russian Federation, which has at least 150 autochthonous peoples. Autochthonous means sure, indigenous yeah. peoples. That's Rather incredible. That's a lot. Eh? That's a lot. It's a, it's a huge country. We're talking about Chechens. We're talking about English. We're talking about mm. the, um, you know, people in uh, Yakuts, you know, the endless Buryats, you know, just the list is just endless Tatars, of course, etc, uh, etc. Et However, Russians uh, make, uh, ethnic Russians are 80% of the population, Tatars about 5%, but, you know, and all the others, smaller proportions, but it's all important. And it, and obviously the uh, Chechens are, you know, very proud people and they're defending, you know, living side of politics at the moment as a cultural formation and any attempt to you know, undermine that, Putin understood, would tear the whole federation apart. So ethnic Russian nationalism is a dynamite, a bomb ready to explode, and that's why he squashed it. That's why he didn't want to unleash this Russian nationalism in 2014 against Ukraine. So, and so he agreed to the Minsk Accords in February 2015, which was a formula for the return of the Donbass to Ukrainian sovereignty and jurisdiction. People forget this. This is absolutely crucial. I, I remember at a Valdai meeting, I was talking to Putin, and then a group of people came up from the from Donetsk, uh, and they said to Vladimir Vladimir, you're not going to betray us. And he said, no, within the framework of the Minsk agreement. Yeah, this was about 2015, 20, no, 2016, 2017. So he. But that's, was, that's quite important. It's hugely important. Yeah. People misunderstood that basically yeah. he was not involved in a land grab. He was not trying to reestablish the Russian Empire, as people say now. Um, we can Let's go on back to that in a minute to what are his motives now, because that's yeah. an important question. But at that point, it was certainly not. 
to rebuild a Soviet empire, Russian empire, anything like this. He kept them at arm's length, but he wasn't going to let them be overrun. But his big gripe then became that Russia, Ukraine, um, sign and the and the independent republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, signed this document. Then you had the Normandy format, France and Germany joined Ukraine and Russia to try to implement it. What Putin got more and more upset about is that the European Union, every six months, by unanimity, uh, um, renewed these sanctions on Russia for not fulfilling the Minsk Accord. Yes. Yet, Ukraine and Kiev, almost no, no pressure was put on Kiev to fulfill mm. its part of the bargain. Now, I can understand if Kiev didn't like these Minsk Accords because it would have meant autonomy for the Donbass, and thus it may well have precluded future NATO membership. And why they're so obsessed by NATO, I don't know, but there you are. Um, so, uh, okay, but if Minsk had said, or if, sorry, if Kiev had said, look, we're not going to fulfill uh, the Minsk Accords, then the European Union would, would, wouldn't would have a leg to stand on. Why then continue sanctions in Russia? Let's find yes. a new formula. Let's find yeah. a new format for discussion. But in other words, every single way... I mean, and just one final thing on this. When president, the present um, president of Vladimir Zelensky was elected in April 2019, he got 73% of the vote as Massive. a peace candidate. As the peace candidate. But these armed formations, the hyper-nationalists, the, the Nazi element, which is relatively small, uh, but basically seized the agenda and basically refused to allow him and held him hostage effectively. They, uh, and so Putin and Zelensky, Merkel and Macron met in December 2019 in France, in Paris. And that was a genuine attempt to try to achieve peace. But even as they were meeting, these militants were meeting in Kiev and said, if you go anywhere close to fulfilling this deal, you'll be out of power. So in other words, the democracy said 70% wanted peace, yet the few handful of militants which were allowed to get away with it. For Putin... You can understand he was getting more and more angry. Look, I'm being sanctioned for something which I, you know, we're not even particularly involved with. I'm saying, let's give it back to Ukraine. We yeah. don't, we don't then let's talk peace. Let's sort out, there was a Steinmeier formula, I won't go into detail. And then, you know, that's blocked. And I get all the flag. <laughs> the background to this is uh, already last year, there was, uh, he, he started, uh, what? let's call it, uh, muscular diplomacy, um, sort of uh, uh, coercive diplomacy, whatever you like. Basically, he said, look, this situation has to be resolved. This Ukrainian question, we have to get to, yeah. to some sort of, We've tried this Normandy format. It hasn't worked. Um, and, you know, we, we also have to prevent the Ukrainian armed forces, which were building up on this side of the border as well. You know, over 100,000 forces in very echeloned formation and getting more... And also, with Western arms pouring in by now, offensive weapons, don't forget that Barack Obama, in up to 2015, refused to sell or send Ukraine offensive lethal weapons because he said it would escalate the situation. Trump comes in, he sends the so-called man who was colluding with Putin, sends javelin and other things. The British, of course, pour in offensive weapons anti-tank and other stuff which is crazy uh, again which putin sees the trend to, line sorry sorry to the ukraine yes 
Uh, and the, the British signed a one and a half billion uh, pound uh, deal to modernize the shipyards, but you know, with all offensive capability there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Putin sitting in Moscow saying, "Look, these trend lines are all against us. Sooner or later, you know, Kiev, Ukraine will be, you know, will be armed to the teeth. It's virulently Russophobic. Just if the last moments, you know, before the war." Uh, you know, Russian language was finally squeezed out. They closed Russian televisions. They've got Viktor Medvedchuk, the leader of the Russophone opposition bloc, under house arrest. You know, massive repression internally of the more pluralistic elements of Ukrainian society. Uh, being armed by the West, then the endless promises of NATO membership. So mm. Putin then uh, also mobilized and said, look, let's try to crack this nut. So he builds up armed forces. He then, on the 17th of December, puts forward two European security treaties, one to NATO, one to the United States, both rather reminiscent of the ideas put forward by Medvedev in 2009. Uh, And, you know, he said, take it or leave it as a package. Don't pick and mix, you know, it's as a package. Uh, The NATO response, as you'd expect under Jens Stoltenberg, the general secretary who is in my view, a man totally out of his depth here. Uh, But the US response was more nuanced. It rejected some of the main things, no NATO enlargement, um, return to the force positions of May 1997, no missile deployment, which you'd have thought, fair enough. I mean, for example, you know, if Mexico wanted to deploy all these things next to the United States, I think the US would have something to say about it. Or even if China wanted to put missile installations in Ireland, I don't think- Well, I'm reminded of Cuba. Well, indeed, this is a Cuba in reverse. That's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so this seventeenth of December, once the U.S. response came on the twenty-sixth of January, uh, it basically didn't accept much, but it kept the door to diplomacy open, and that's important. Mm. It kept the door. It was not slammed shut. The NATO one was effectively slammed shut, but the U.S. one kept was kept open. Um, uh, 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 and then, you know, there was a whole flurry of diplomacy. Uh, Schultz, Schultz from uh, Germany went to Moscow. Macron from France went to Moscow. But they had nothing to offer. The only one who could offer something was Biden. And Biden is deeply implicated in Ukraine anyway from his son and uh, <laughs> way back. So, and Biden has a distinctive line in goading Putin personally, calling him a killer. Yes. Then... Uh, then sending Victoria Newland, one of the architects of the, um, well, whatever you want to call it, in uh, 2014 to Moscow. Uh, mm. And he just goaded and poked this bear and, you know, personally insulted Putin. Why, but, though? Uh, Sorry, why? Is it because he personally doesn't like him or is it just theatre? It, 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 I mean, it's both, but uh, certainly Biden. But it burns it on because Biden, on the other hand, Biden did meet Putin in a summit in June 20, uh, last year, 2021, mm. in Geneva. Uh, but even then, Putin would say, look, we met, we talked. Two things came out of it, strategic stability talks and cyber talks. On cyber, there was some joint work, actually, in the United Nations. On the strategic stability, almost nothing. So Putin says, look, we've had 25 or 30 years in which our security concerns have been ignored. You know, this isn't above all, not only, but it, above all this NATO enlargement question, 
you know, okay, there's big debates about the promises they were given. We know in 1990, over 20 foreign leaders promised that NATO would not enlarge beyond uh, the uh, former East Germany. It was, this is the National Security Archives mm. published by uh, George Washington University. I saw the photograph of them signing, yeah. Yes. So, uh, and then, okay, you could say slightly modified by the German Unification Treaty in a bit later in 1990. But no, the ultimate vision was, as as Brzezinski effectively conceded, you know, and uh, that if you're going to enlarge NATO, Russia would be very, very upset because it would consider it a major threat to its security. George Kennan, mm-hmm. the great doyen of international politics, warned us, we will make an enemy of Russia. Whereas Biden insisted on NATO enlarging, uh, the option of Ukraine joining NATO. Now, That's not a good I, idea, yeah. I said earlier, you know, why they're so obsessed. Now, I wanted, and now we all who, you know, respect and like uh, Ukraine, wanted a sovereign, prosperous, free, democratic, pluralistic Ukraine. But, and so did most other Ukrainians, extraordinarily peace-loving, great people. Uh, you know, and, uh, but we wanted, imagine, you know, we want all of this, but, oh, by the way, we're going to join a hostile military alliance to Moscow we're next to here. So we want all these good things, but we're going to join this alliance. You couldn't make it up. I mean, I cannot understand the strategic logic. NATO is not that important. They're not going to join for, they weren't going to join for two or three decades. So why not even accept an internally? And don't forget that neutrality was the position of Ukraine when it declared independence. And then under Yanukovych, until December 2014, before the nationalists removed it. It was neutral. So in other words, if you're sitting in Moscow, you would, uh, you know, be more and more concerned. Then just so you've got this this sort of diplomacy. I understand no one likes to negotiate with a pistol held to your head, but nevertheless, you know, <laughs> they could understand. Putin was getting upset that okay, if they had any sense in Washington, because that's ultimately the serious place. The European Union were, and the others were they couldn't actually deliver the goods. It was only Washington which could. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're getting more and more upset. Uh, and yet they didn't take it seriously. Blinken is completely out of his depth. Jake Sullivan is the man who worked with uh, Hillary Clinton. To, he was the one who fostered the absurd mm. Russiagate allegations of yes. Putin's Trump collusion. Jake Sullivan, who Biden then appoints as national security advisor, effectively <laughs> dealing with Moscow. You couldn't make it up. You could not make it up that... The West has done absolutely everything to goad and humiliate and depress. Can I just make absolutely clear, though, that the invasion of 24th of February, it, all of this does not justify that. And I condemn it absolutely, uh, you know, un, unquestionably, uh, uh, you know, with unreservedly. So right. you know, that anything I say today is analytical. It's yes. trying to put it into context. It does not endorse what is an absolutely monstrous uh, war. And I get absolutely clear. But as you say, well, the point of this exercise I talked today is to understand how we got to this and to say that Russia had legitimate security concerns. And then you have the question, what is legitimate in this context? Then sure. we come back to that ontological question, liberal hegemony, hegemony as the model, or that sovereign internationalism model. Has Vladimir Putin violated any international laws just in recently 
Yes. Where, and, and, oh, absolutely. This invasion is complete, complete uh, against absolutely everything, which he, abs against absolutely everything, by the way, which he has been proclaiming for so many years in terms of that uh, sovereign internationalism, charter international system, even against the principles which he and Xi Jinping signed in their joint sure. statement on the 4th of February, the opening day of the Beijing Olympics, a very important document in which they stated, they outlined their vision of the world. And that is why I have a feeling that the only serious country which could intervene now, so let's, I'll come back to in a minute, but just to say, the logic which led to the 20, to the invasion of the 24th. So Putin feels that, you know, no one is listening to us, they rejected all of this, uh, that there's no way out. Then on the 21st, he had this rather bizarre Security Council meeting where the chief officials, you know, were yards away from him, meters away from him, and recognizing the independence of the Donbass republics and his hour-long speech, which was emotional, and it was no longer focusing on the, security. The, the empire of liars. Yes, that's the one. Yes. It's, it's yeah. an incredible speech. It's an incredible speech. Emotional, mm. focusing on identity as much as security. Mm. An incredible speech. Some people say it showed him demented. I've never seen him quite like that. He, he was on the edge of uh, his emotional... You, know, you could see this man was under mm. enormous strain. And also you could show the fact that elite solidarity had broken down, that this was not, this showed the fact that uh, these people were scared. These were no longer colleagues, no longer people who would dare to give advice. Even Lavrov there said, look, the door to negotiations and diplomacy is not closed. He did say that. Sure. So, and it wasn't yet. Uh, so there was this uh, independence. And then you have all of this. By the way, just before that, Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference said that Ukraine may give up its non-nuclear status. Again, a huge thing. Again, if you're sitting in Moscow, what does this mean? You have this virulently Russophobic government in Kiev. You have it supported by the virulent anti-Russianists in Washington, uh, and mm. less so in Europe. Uh, and look, what are we supposed to do? I would say continue diplomacy instead of which he looked. I mean, and even, you know, even what I thought, and, you know, I admit I was wrong, but so was Zelensky wrong. No one believed that these vast Russian forces in Belarus to the east and in Crimea would actually launch a land-based invasion to take the cities. What I thought would happen was that they would push back the Donbass border a little bit to, so that Donbass, uh, Donetsk and so on are no longer bombed. As you know, 80% of the violations were attacks on the Donbass from the Ukrainian side. And they were quite yeah. active just before the end, which the West says was fake news. It wasn't, because I know my PhD student's girlfriend, Margarita, uh, is in, was in Donbass. And she was saying, you know, we're being bombed nonstop. So it wasn't in Donetsk howitzers and so on. So and Sorry, yeah, sorry but, was, but just on that, that's not new. That's been going on for eight years. Yes, it has. And the majority of violations came from Ukrainian side. And the majority of casualties, therefore, on the Donetsk mm. side. Sorry, so, I interrupted you. No, no, that's right. It was, uh, and yet the West constantly blamed Russia forces. I mean, it was just bizarre, to be honest, mm. that this these people were living. These were Ukrainian people, by the way, being murdered and killed by the Ukrainian side. And then they wanted a territory which they wanted to take back into Ukraine. Of course, these people are going to be no longer keen yeah. to go back. You know, I, I, you couldn't make it up. I mean, I'm, yeah. we're talking, Dad. I'm glad we're talking because it's... It's just it was just simply as if there was this narrative 
which was so distorted. And they said, you know, I, I think, you know, I'd have loved to have seen uh, Donetsk return to Ukrainian jurisdiction with a ceasefire, with a pardon for all, you know, a zero option for all sides. Mm. And then uh, maybe international troops uh, involved in such like return of border to Ukraine and so on. There was a way forwards, and yet uh, always maximalist demands on Moscow. Then Moscow gave its own mos- maximalist demands. So, so this was a very unexpected uh, strategy by Putin. Does it show that he made an error of judgment, or, or does it show that he's a master chess player? No. Up to up to then, you could say he'd been playing a very skillful game. I mean, he, he was very effective in the Crimea inauguration. He was very effective in Syria, by the way, interventions in September 23rd, keeping it limited, keeping it controlled. This land-based invasion was, of course, masterminded by the military Ministry of Defense, not the FSB, the security services. So and the Minister of Defense is Sega Shaigu. So it seems that these guys had gained more in the balance of power and so a land-based invasion to take a city of three million people kiev was in in the 21st century was abominable abominable because and harkov and so on absolutely abominable it was they 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 assumed that they would be greeted with bread and salt the traditional slavic way mm. of greeting uh, which of course was a fantasy world of course yeah. no they failed to understand how Ukraine has developed in its national identity as a nation, proud in and of itself, which we enjoy. That's great. You know, that, let, let them be all of that. Uh, as long as they could have sorted, and as long as we could have sorted out the security question, we didn't need to get to this. Mm. This, mon- this idea that NATO and the cho- you have this free choice to join any alliance you want to, irrespective of the effect it will have on a neighbor, is just absurd. And yet it's told... But- endlessly in the western media which is completely mistaken it doesn't exist in international law mm. that you can just do anything to it and these were all the foundational documents of the post-cold war peace has these two contradictory principles you free choice of sovereign which you can do but it has to be individual and take into mm. account and just common sense by the way you don't forget the documents simple common sense cuba but, mexico any other country but richard sorry i I have to ask you, it sounds like a stupid question, but when you say Ukraine, what do you mean? Because I keep thinking of that river that's, that divides mm. the West and the East. And I, and I keep seeing these maps. And I keep seeing mm. these maps of language distribution, etc. Mm. No, but uh, I think it's important to stress that um, in recent years, and even before that, there is a very strong Ukrainian national identity, uh, which despite what I said earlier about you know divisions, and they, they exist in my view, mm. they, they, the different ways in which they could have expressed this identity. That's that's my argument. Is not to say there wasn't this sense of right. identity. Uh, and so when when Putin and his colleagues thought that you know these Russian speakers would then welcome, that has that maybe before 2014 there was a greater element of this, but since 2014, massive propaganda within Ukraine, by the way. Of Xenophobic and so on. So it was clearly so they have fallen into something far, far worse than Vietnam or Afghanistan. It is a catastrophe for the Ukrainian people above all, but also for the Russians. I feel very, very upset yeah. for the Russians as well under these massive sanctions, economic warfare, unlimited yes. atomic warfare in economic terms. Are you suggesting that? Putin might have made an error of judgment here. 
Yes, I do. I think he did. I mean, massive one. So, in other words, in that reckless, dangerous, inhumane decision, he has thrown away whatever achievements you may have seen in the last 22 years. It was tough. He, you know, the achievements could have been better and so on. Uh, but yes, he has gambled. And even if they win, what are they going to do? I'll occupy Ukraine? There'd be endless insurgency and so on. Not occupy? Leave with the tail between your legs? Humiliation? It's the biggest defeat because it was an unjust war. You can. It wasn't unprovoked. I'm not saying it was. There was a lot of provocation. Yeah. That's not to justify for one minute what actually happened, of course. And oh, he, it's a catastrophic mistake. It will. And now this conflict is internalized within Russia, and we're going to see major protests. Is is Vladimir Putin actually interested in Ukraine in terms of um, ownership? No. No, the idea, and Zelensky say that after Ukraine, they're going to drive on to Poland and so on. No, they wanted to solve the security dilemma mm. with Ukraine. They didn't want, I mean, I mean then I always said we're going to return to it. What are, exactly, what are Putin's war, war aims? First and above all, security, to ensure Ukrainian neutrality. However, this invasion will, already a fairly hostile country, is going to, feed enmity for generations mm. to come oh this so, could not be a more kind of, and a blot on russia i mean the blot is hardly the right word mm. but a stain on russia's historical reputation even though before just before the war a majority you know independent polls showed the russian people in favor of some sort of action to try to solve this question however i think that russians like any normal people cannot condone this this sort of this sort of behavior so what is ukraine and of course russia's exit strategy yeah doesn't look as if there is one my view is that there's only one possibility there isn't one except china china needs to um be act as an honest broker china pipes with india um and south africa that, i mean in other words completely people outside uh, and so on. You know, he's a respected figure. And Brazil as well, if you're talking about and BRICS. Bolsonaro, maybe even indeed colleagues there, mm. uh, or the Shanghai Corporation Organization colleagues. Yeah. But in other words, not Europeans, because, I mean, mm. no one trusts the, the European Union um, and Germany and France are too involved in it all now. So, but China is a big player in all of this, with India possibly. And they could um, act, at, you know, gives, uh, allow first of all a ceasefire and then provide a framework for russian forces to leave and to ensure that at least you know both have an as you know that to say okay ukraine would be neutral except that non-nuclear non neutral like austria like finland you know these mm. it isn't like ireland you know it's not uh unknown gas and energy and Nord stream mm. too does mm. this play a role well in the war no no, because uh, Putin, uh, I mean, I mean, whether, I mean, en endless Western commentary that Putin calculated that the West is so dependent on Russian mm -hmm. energy that uh, he assumed that there wouldn't be so many sanctions in, re in response. I'm not sure. I mean, they expected a fairly tough response, not as tough as it actually turned out to mm -hmm. be. But, uh, you know, I mean, and of course, the gas is still flowing. I mean, if it's allowed to flow and the the, the, mm -hmm. the uh, oil is still flowing. The ships are being turned back, but um, the, you know, I mean, but in the long term, 
of course, Russia has now damaged its economic interests because the West is going to stop and all of this will have to go to China, which pays uh, Yeah, but less. Richard, do you think that there's a weird kind of monster being created as a counter-response? Which monster? Well, for example, with all the sanctions that are being oh, yes. slapped onto, onto Russia, uh, Putin is not going to sit back and just let the, the country oh, no. tank. Uh, well, what can he do but escalate? Putin will dig in. He's not one to give in. Mm. Uh, we've seen it before in Chechnya. We've seen it uh, elsewhere. Um, no, he won't give in. So this is what makes the uh, calls for a no-fly zone so dangerous because that would lead to military confrontation with NATO, mm. which could very quickly move to nuclear confrontation. I think we're more in danger of nuclear war today than we've ever been including in the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, that this is the most dangerous sure. moment in the history of humanity because we have thermonuclear weapons poised to launch at any moment now. Sure. And it's accompanied by hatred, a language of hatred and demonization and violence. Who, who are Putin's allies? He has no allies. I mean, some are staying a bit quieter than others, but uh, no one is really going to support it. I mean, obviously, Belarus and Venezuela. Not um, China. Uh, but not China. China, um, uh, and worse than that, worse than that. I mean, China abstained in the UN resolution last week, but condemning the war. But uh, China, uh, more than that, Putin has managed to devalue Russia's value as an, an ally of China. So it's now going to... Uh, become very much more subordinate. China, the only winner in all of this is China, massively, and possibly India. The only winner, the West has lost massively. I mean, it shows that they cannot, this upset, why Europe, the, you know, we would have thought we would have finally outgrown the wars, you know, first to two great wars. I don't know what it looks like from South Africa or from New Delhi or Beijing, mm -hmm. but we're going to Beijing. You'd sometimes see these Chinese clutch their heads, I mean, metaphorically. What idiots these Europeans are. Can't they get themselves sorted? Couldn't they say, even Brzezinski say, if you're going to have an expanding military alliance, which was designed in the Soviet times to attack your enemy, of course the successor state will be upset if you try to enlarge and co-opt all the members, uh, as members, all the states on its border. You're going to have, you know, conflict. Can't you see it in Washington, in Brussels? I mean, can't you see it? And they had tried to soften the blow with the NATO-Russia Council. But at any crisis, they don't, you know, the United States vetoed its membership. Um, it's convening. Uh, so, you know, Europe, um, it seems, you know, if you look at it from New Delhi or um, Pretoria or wherever, you know, it looks like these Europeans simply absolute infant and they will drag the world down with it instead of after the Cold War building you know a, a developmental agenda modernization in a genuine sense to use the huge technological capacity of humanity to decarbonize to stabilize the you know climate crisis which we're all facing we seem to have forgotten now the pandemic crises um it's all of them gone. it's all gone it's all gone because uh, but the fate of humanity now hangs on a slender thread what is the next move at the moment, it's uh, they're they're digging in. They're at the moment, all sides are digging in for the long haul, piling in weapons. Germany is supplying weapons, which of course for Germany, first time since the uh, 
um, Second World War uh, applying weapons. So, but this is NATO is a, uh, you know, I've always argued that perhaps NATO would have been a good thing, but it had to change its character. It did not. It continued as a Cold War animal. Uh, and so now uh, we're, we're heading, well, basically we're seeing for the intensification of conflict, all like, and you know, the only f force, as I say, is an honest broker from outside, and that would be India, China, and perhaps, as you say, the BRICS colleagues. What does this mean for the West? On the one side today, we're seeing the West saying, look at the unity we've shown. Look at the block solidarity we've shown. I've always said this was an illusion. Not that there isn't block solidarity. We've had too much. We've had too much solidarity. We should have had diversity. We should have had Germany really forging trustworthy links with Russia, and not just economic ones, but political. But it wasn't. It couldn't do because it was constrained by the EU. It was constrained by uh, NATO. So we need less block solidarity, which is a synonym for U.S. dominance. Mm. That's all it is. Macron, in a goalless tradition, has tried to act as an honest broker. I laud them, both Schultz and Macron. Their attempts to keep talking to Putin, they, they, you know, there's a lot of talk in the West that, you know, they've got egg on their face. They don't. They mm -hmm. did everything possible, but they could offer nothing because they, they came empty handed to Moscow. So let's talk. But Moscow would say, look, we've been talking for 30 years or 20 years and you never listened to us, to what we want. Where's your offer? The only one who could offer anything was Washington. And under the Biden, Blinken, Sullivan administration, you're not going to get much joy out of that. So... Uh, sure. So what this means for the West, this victory is Pyrrhic. They will now militarize. They will right. now arm. And we're into another cycle of you know, arms. But I mean, Russia, what they're hoping, of course, is for regime change in Russia. And in some ways, Putin's position is much weaker as a result of all of this. There will be mass protests. There will be elite splits. Russians are just people. And they will not support an unjust war. So this could work against Putin. Yes. I mean, I'm not advocating anything and I'm not saying I'm simply analyzing. And I'm saying that obviously his position is, is weakened. Because, I mean, if they if they had managed militarily to have seized their objectives, which wasn't entirely clear how on earth you could seize a city like uh, Kiev, you know, what, how, you know, in this day and age, I simply don't understand that. Uh, certainly they underestimated Ukrainian will to resist. Um, but uh, sure, he is, uh, you know, he, he will cling on, even if he, even if they win, he is, mm. you know, he's a briar, of course, in international community. Uh, what happens to Zelensky? Well, Zelensky could well emerge triumphant out of all of this. How? Well, I mean, uh, once if you have a ceasefire, Russian forces leave, then you have Ukraine. But then, of course, in any peace deal, we'd have to deal with the Donbass, the status, to ensure that we don't have, you know, forces and mass murder mm -hmm. takes place out. We'd have to deal with Crimea. So we have to have a grand bargain, if you like. We'd have Russian forces leave first. You know, maybe a ceasefire initially, and then, you know, restore, restore. Russia would actually have to promise to pay compensation. And I think that's fair for all of the, some of the damage it's done from oil revenues, that we, you know, gas and oil continues to flow to the West. Um, that, but then there can, there will be no deal because they won't talk to Putin. So maybe Chinese good officers could could do it or Narendra Modi. But you know, one way or another, 
you know, there, there has to be, a, I mean, unless we have full-scale war. But, you know, we're talking about two nuclear-armed powers, you know, battling it out. Um, Is this going to take us, do you think, into some sort of multipolar world? Well, we are in a multipolar world. We are. Um, you know, but the, it's a bipolar because Russia has now basically blown it. It's blown it mm. for a generation. Even, you know, Putin survives. Let's say Putin survives politically, which I think he probably will for a year or so. But he's wounded, lame. We have a deal of the sort I just said. We would, as part of the deal, by the way, there could be international recognition of Kosovo. There could be some other elements in it, Crimea, Donbass, you know, a few other issues, neutrality for Ukraine. Uh, so Putin could say, OK, we achieved our goal. Um, then he goes back home. But who is going to deal with Putin apart from, you know, these intermediaries? That's an immediate term. In the long term, people are going to shift away from Russian energy, no investment, uh, economy in Russia tanks, uh, standards of living fall. Uh, mm. Russia was heading Because of for, all the sanctions. Yes, Russia was heading... And they won't lift sanctions. Once the West imposes sanctions, when has it ever lifted them? Ask the Iranians, ask the Cubans. Uh, they don't. I mean, once the, there's no, I mean, just don't, there's no mechanism to... Well, we had we had our sanctions lifted. Uh, indeed. Uh, but then, of course, you had regime change of a most yeah. extreme sort. Yeah. yeah. And, and indeed, it's a one case, they could argue, where sanctions actually worked, of course. Does, does Taiwan become suddenly a target to, to no. China? Not. No. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a false, uh, I mean, it's obviously, it's an important issue, but uh, I mean, Beijing certainly has said, and uh, others, it's quite clear that um, they, they're certainly not going to use this as an excuse to invade and so on. I mean, our foreign minister, foreign secretary, uh, Liz Truss, made this, uh, made some wild uh, comments uh, along this line when she visited Australia, and the former Australian prime minister, Paul Keating, said, not only is it wrong, it was demented, and of course, uh, it was demented to say that you know China is going to invade Taiwan and so on and so forth. No, no, um, it, 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 and China is not stupid enough to to do. It. They are committed to reunification, but um, you know, in the long term, peaceful mm. means. Uh, I mean, how it could be achieved, but and also, of course, Beijing will learn from Russia's catastrophe and mistake. Now, I mean, the Taiwanese will resist. Sure, of course. Um, I have to ask you. Uh, two questions that I have been asked to ask you, and that is, is Russia actually a threat to the West? And by extension, is Russia still communist? It's definitely not communist. In fact, Putin is a bit of a neoliberal, uh, conservative neoliberal and marketizer and so on, even though statist uh, of a very peculiar sort. Uh, and as a threat to the West, I think that the th so-called th Russian threat to the West has been ma massively exaggerated over the years. Now, of course, now, of course, after the 24th of February 2022 is going to be one of the most important dates in history ever. Because sure. a major state invaded another neighbor state because, as I said, it was not unprovoked. It was unjustified and completely wrong. But it was, you'd look back, the historians will look and say, look, as I've been trying to do, why couldn't they sort out the post-Cold War? Bijinsky said this, Kennan warned about it, all sorts of people warned about it, I warned about it. And also the danger of the West using Ukraine as a battering ram against Russia, which was, I thought, unconscionable over the years. Unconscionable the way. And the Ukrainians, of course, the nationalists, please, were loved it because they were yeah. getting love bombed by Washington. So, you know, what's not to like? Well, 
Let me ask you the converse question. Is the West a threat to Russia? It was perceived as a threat. And of course it was. In, one, in the sense that it was not taking Russian security concerns seriously. Now, you may say that the West itself, and I agree, the NATO was, is a defensive organization, collective defense. Mm. But then you'd sit in Moscow and say, look, okay, yeah, sure it is. But look, it bombed Serbia for 88 days in 1999 over Kosovo. 88 days. And I've seen the bombing. In, and it wasn't just... In, the British, of course, wanted to bomb all the bridges in Belgrade. Can you believe it? When you say no modern city has been in, attacked, well, ask the Serbs. And Belgrade was bombed. It's sure. television tower. The first bombing raid didn't destroy it, but the second one did, and there's pictures of it uh, falling out. Second, then it inv- effectively, NATO, uh, effectively in Iraq, didn't hold it back. It wasn't a NATO operation. Afghanistan, uh, Libya, Libya. So yeah. it's collective defense, but Guy, that seems to me to be not very uh, defensive. So sitting next to in Moscow, um, <coughs> so is the West a danger to Russia? It always said, but even if it wasn't, Russia's belief that it was. So you've got to take Russia's perception of these things mm. seriously. If we learn anything from the 21st, 20th century history, is that you know Britain and Germany before 1914 were ultimately somebody. I think that some Japanese dipl- diplomat in, in 1904 said this was absurd. Looking at it from Tokyo, what what are Britain and Germany, they're, they're playing these games with their ships and their dreadnoughts and all of that. But, you know, it, it was quite clear from an outsider that their perceptions of threat were completely exaggerated and wrong, but they fed on each other. So my analogy, well, many people, of course, are now saying that the analogy is Putin like Hitler, 1939, the land grab. My, I think that's completely tendentious and false, though it may become true. But it's uh, the better analogy is 1914 and the First World War. Well, Australians, of course, have bought into this completely with the AUKUS Pact. Uh, so, but for w- what it does mean is that uh, for uh, the non-aligned movement, that it, it's more, more important than ever. That you cannot trust Washington. That Beijing also has its great power ambitions, of one form or another. So, therefore, it. But of course, I think it's more better managed and more controlled mm-hmm. in, in external policy. So, it, it, it's it, what it, what this means is that do not become a pawn in Western great power games. Right. Australia has become, and look at its huge losses in terms of uh, of uh, trade with China and it's become an enemy. And uh, and it's become, you know, with this AUKUS pact, it'll be a nuclear base, a nuclear submarine base, which is what it's all about ultimately, and as a target. So I think that, you know, countries like South Africa really have to step up and call on all it, nations and multipolarity to you know to, to step back and act uh, provide their good officers as non-participants in this conflict how if if i were to give you the the power to go to ukraine or to russia and to make a decision what would you do well i would immediately remove all the russian troops within uh um within ukraine i would uh i would restore Ukrainian sovereignty, accept Crimea, I would, within Russia, I would uh, say to Mr. Putin, look, you, you've, uh, you know, you, you've got to apologize for all of this and make reparations, and also remove the repressive legislation within Russia itself, because Russia 
is a democratic country. I mean, a, a democratic society. Now, obviously, the institutions are failing to reflect mm -hmm. that. The, the societal attitudes uh, are deeply democratic. The all opinion polls show it. That yes, of course, it's a great power, and just like United States or Britain, we all have our illusions, and the Russians no less or no more mm -hmm. than others. But ultimately, that uh, you know, and I would say, really, let's finally, finally build that post-Cold War peace order, which we were promised in 1989, we've failed, and we need now to build that. And also on that basis, a an alliance for development, and that is to use human ingenuity, technology, there's extraordinary developments, artificial intelligence, all of this, these elements, for example, I just heard a radio earlier today, that, light, that a television today uses less power than a light bulb did 20 years ago. Maybe it's an exaggeration, but it's equivalent. Yeah, they're eight watts. A light bulb now is eight watts, and it used to be 60 or 100. You know, it's, and you know, with all the, even this technology, I'm sitting here in Canterbury, southeast of London, uh, near to the North Sea in the English Channel, and you're sitting, uh, whereabouts uh, in South Africa? Cape, Cape, Cape Town. Town. Cape Town, you're sitting in Cape Town, and we're talking as if mm. we're next door. It's just absolutely yeah. And you know, I'm an old-fashioned believer in technological development, in progress, as we used to call it. It's been so discredited by the neoliberal world at the end of communism, which is another issue, by the way, this uh, leaving aside the security, the fact that we've fluffed the developmental agenda. Unfortunately, communism fell just at the time when the world was seized by this insane vision of you know, pure markets and marketizing everything. And in other words, letting the capitalist the oligarchs, the genuine Western oligarchs, exploit you know i live in canterbury 70 percent of the children on the a28 the road going out towards margate 70 percent of children there live in poverty sure. is that not a scandal so should we build more nuclear submarines or feed and have this developmental agenda uh we could i mean i am in favor of markets i think that you know the soviet style yeah. planning system didn't work but they the market has to be managed by the state so neoliberalism the vision that markets are self-correcting they're not that markets can be developmental of course they can be innovative and we want that energy we want individuals to have their entrepreneurial energy effective you need to launch a new business you've got an idea go for it guy go for it uh, and indeed for anywhere in seconds to facilitate it everywhere in the mm. townships anywhere where you are to through education of men and women uh, of course a huge potential of women which is not used across many parts of the world, uh, you know, to, to, to develop all of this. And there's a word for that, and it's called socialism. And so socialism... Ooh, that's, a, that's a very, very evil word these days. I, I want to rehabilitate it, uh, because <laughs> we're talking about democratic, humane socialism. We're talking about a, a socialism which harnesses the power of the market, which harnesses the power of human ingenuity and, hu and of human entrepreneurism because i know so i mean humans i don't know do like to they, they they like to work with their hands and brain and to achieve and right. to build something and there should be every incentive to do so and a socialism which squashes that is awful i don't want to have anything to do with that so we're talking about not just market socialism but a socialist market as you know a, a way yeah. which can achieve all of that but for the public good could could you throw in a bit of national identity there, or is that also a, a, a taboo no. term? 
No, so therefore, I think that obviously socialism is an internationalist ideology, but at the same time, I, I very much respect, and so it has to be a well, a national, well, a socialism of the nation, uh, which is, uh, you know, and I, I'm I'm a great believer, by the way, in the nation state, uh, yes. in patriotism. Uh, and that within, but an internationalist patriotism, not an exclusive one, that in other words, all nations should, and all the many peoples within the nation to develop uh, within this framework of UN Charter and internationalism. But, you know, what makes South Africa so, you know, marvellous is its own peculiar history, the combination of its peoples, mm. its territory, the geography, the weather even, all of these things, and sporting traditions. Uh, and, you know, it's marvellous. I think that everybody should take pride in the in, and any country should take pride in that. Okay, there have to be adjustments. For example, United mm. Kingdom, you know, I also respect the aspirations of the Scottish people. Maybe one day Scotland will become an independent state. If it's done democratically, if it's done peacefully, Wales mm. as well. I mean, I, I have nothing but admiration for Wales, the way that it solved its language question and is now developing as a bilingual state, um, you know, with all the signs in Wales are in Welsh and in English, language, everything. That's magnificent. And if you want to have the privilege of living in Wales, then you should learn Welsh. And I think that's absolutely right. And if you want the privilege of living in Ukraine, you should learn Ukrainian. Yes. Yeah. Up to a certain um, level. So in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Mm. I'm afraid the crystal ball is fogged and cloudy and dark. I'm deeply pessimistic. But I think... If we can see our way through this now, I'm deeply pessimistic because I, I had all this idealism at the end of the Cold War that we really finally were going to achieve a unit, unification of humanity and development and so on. So I, I all I can see is war, violence and crisis. Sure, sure. Wow. <laughs> Come on, you have, to, you have to have something more chance. uplifting for me. <laughs> well, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. But I'm looking at it from a European perspective, and we've made a dog's dinner. We've messed up again. We've messed mm. up again. So what I would say is you guys down in South Africa, you guys in China, you guys in India, it's up to you guys now. We, we've messed it up. Do you think there is hope for BRICS, for example? I, I'm in favor of that body. I, I'm in favor of all of these bodies which people are talking and crossing continents and crossing cultures. Yes, I do. It's got a BRICS development bank. It's got a reserve. You know, it's it's useful and it's not dominated by the Western capitalist imperialist powers, as we used to call but them. But I have to, sorry, I've got to interrupt you because I keep getting asked this question. So let me just throw it at you then. When we talk about BRICS, we 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 can't ignore China. And China is always seen as this massive communist threat. Mm. Again, wrong. Uh, it's uh, the point is China. It's a complex political formation. I mean, it's a civilization, you know, arguably five thousand years old. Uh, it's got, uh, and the way that it China is now being demonized by Washington, I think, is again another sign. It's actually that Washington, in its insistence on primacy, on exceptionalism. It's dangerous. We see it in Ukraine, how dangerous it's been. And it's now dangerous uh, the way it's demonizing China. China has huge problems domestically. It's got a demographic issue coming up. It's got quite apart from it, uh, Tibet and Xinjiang and Hong Kong and all the rest. Yet, yet China offers a model of development externally. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative is hugely important. 
And you shouldn't just simply say it's a way of China emulating the United States. It's perhaps offering an alternative and perhaps even a better alternative to some of the worst instincts of the US exceptionalism. Richard, where can people follow you? I'm not a social media person, so <laughs> I don't know. I'd love a social, somebody to help me, to tell me. I'd love if someone answer that question for me. I don't know. <laughs> Seriously. I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm not even sure, you know, occasionally. I've been looking at it lately, but um, I'm not. Yeah, please. I'd like a media <laughs> advisor, please. <laughs> I'm an old school. I'm up the old school. <laughs> Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, Richard. Um, I've really enjoyed having you with me here in the trenches. Yeah, likewise, I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.